biggest themes we like to explore on this show is how our actions can have astoundingly far-reaching consequences. History is littered with close calls and missed opportunities. Moments that held the potential to reshape the modern world. Which brings us to today's subject. Despite being one of the most well-known figures in world history, so many events in his life are unknown or misunderstood by the general public. First among them may be his actions decades before the American Revolution took off. How far-reaching were the consequences that stemmed from those actions? Well, would you believe me if I said they started a world war? Or that that world war eventually led to the very revolution he would lead? Because it's true. This man set into motion the events that would eventually propel him onto the world stage. His name, of course, is George Washington. And this is Rebellion. Americans think of George Washington, we think of his statues, his portraits, his image on our currency, a grim, stoic expression conveying an air of unyielding integrity. I suppose his name may cause some people to recall mythical stories from his past, cutting down his father's cherry tree, crossing the frozen Delaware River, or having wooden teeth. Others may think of him as a flawless leader, the unanimous choice for president, the man who stepped down from power at a time when he could have seized all of it. But the details of his life, even for someone so highly regarded, seem to have been reduced to parables and legends. So, who was he really? Was he really that courageous war hero turned resolute leader about whom we've all been taught? If so, how did he manage to navigate through an era of political jostling, backdoor dealing, and sensational press without sacrificing his morality? To find out, we have to examine the first part of his life. From his childhood in the Virginia countryside, during which he withstood tremendous personal loss. Through his adolescence, spent sleeping on the ground on frigid winter nights surveying the wilderness. All the way to his first taste of military action, where he would see enough bloodshed to last a lifetime. He never competed with the brilliant politicians, philosophers, and writers of the time people like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison. Instead, he held only the equivalent of an elementary school education. 
All other knowledge he received was gathered himself, earned through diligence, experience, and repeated failures. And while other leaders of the day were heralded for their acuity, their groundbreaking ideas, and their sharp quills, Washington set himself apart by displaying a more impressive, more indefinable virtue, character. To evaluate his character requires study of his early life. His childhood was a difficult one. Though he was born into a fairly wealthy, land-owning, slave-holding family, he still faced his fair share of hardship. By the time he was 11 years old, four members of his family had died, including three of his siblings and his father. Filling that void was his brother Lawrence, whom he seemingly idolized, and his mother Mary, a firm, almost authoritarian presence in his life. His mother was known to be extremely stern and overbearing with her children. While other women of the time may have sought out another husband, Mrs. Washington remained an unmarried widower, forcing George and the others to grow up faster than most kids their age. This sudden demand for George to mature, in addition to the resolute presence of his mother, seemed to have shaped his famously steely demeanor. He would become known for his discipline and his strict adherence to social etiquette. So detailed was he in his pursuit of self-discipline that at age 14, he wrote, or more accurately copied, a list of guidelines for how to behave. Its full title is George Washington's Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. If you're curious, there are 110 of those rules, and they include instructions on how short to keep your fingernails, how to swat a bug off of someone, how opened or closed to keep your lips, and reminds you not to be such a close talker that you spit on people when you talk. Good advice. Some suggest that the writing of those rules was done as a school assignment. But his schooling didn't last long. After the death of his father, George was no longer able to continue, moving on to a premature adulthood with the equivalent of just an elementary school education. Despite what may seem a hampering disadvantage, he became a professional surveyor three years after his father's death surveying vast stretches of uncharted land and receiving good wages for it. This was in part thanks to the connections his brother Lawrence enjoyed through his marriage to Anne Fairfax, a member of a prominent Virginia family. George adored his brother Lawrence, who was 14 years older than him. So for George, who had already endured so much loss, life must have seemed hopeless when Lawrence contracted tuberculosis. So devoted was he to his older brother, he accompanied Lawrence to Barbados in 1751, in hopes that the warmer climate might improve the odds of survival. Instead, Lawrence's condition worsened, and upon their return to Virginia, 
George lost yet another member of his family, who was for him at that time perhaps the most important person in his life. The only positives from that trip to Barbados were that George acquired a more adventurous spirit and developed an immunity to smallpox, a disease he contracted and survived that left him with permanent facial scarring, but also protected him from an illness that would kill thousands of soldiers during the Revolutionary War and millions more in North America. So this young boy with an expedited childhood moved on to the next phase of his life. He had weathered enormous personal loss, which may have helped prepare him for a bigger challenge when war would come calling. A few years after returning to Virginia, Washington was chosen for a vital mission in the run-up to the French and Indian War, when the colonies fought on behalf of the British against the French. On October 31, 1753, Lieutenant Governor Robert Dinwiddie wrote a letter to French officials to vacate a disputed tract of land that he wished to build forts on, hoping to protect the area for fur companies and establish trade with local natives. These territory disputes were the main cause of the French and Indian War, which was really just the North American theater of the larger Seven Years' War between France and England. Anyway, Washington was chosen to deliver the message, thanks mostly to his experience surveying uncharted land, but also a steady demeanor that belied his young age. That same day, he saddled a horse and rode out toward the French outpost with a message signed by King George II, a man whose grandson would one day send thousands of troops to fight against Washington. The message warned the French not to build on English soil or else be driven off by, quote, force of arms. In other words, the 21-year-old Virginian with the elementary school education was sent to deliver the French an ultimatum. Washington described the mission as taking him, quote, 250 miles through an uninhabited wilderness toward Lake Erie in the depth of winter, when the whole face of the earth was covered with snow and the waters covered with ice. Weather reports from other sources in that region confirm that it was a frigid winter indeed. It took roughly 40 days for Washington to cover that distance traveling about six miles per day, before finally delivering the king's message in December. As one might expect, the French refused to abandon the area and sent Washington back to his lieutenant governor with a message of their own. There is one anecdote from his travels that seems to foretell his future as a respected leader. On their way back home, they enlisted the help of some French Indians. At some point, at a clearing, one of them darted out ahead of the group, turned, 
and fired a bullet at them. Washington's companion then charged the man, dove on him, and prepared to kill him with his musket. Washington, however, intervened and convinced his friend to spare the man's life. Instead, they bound him and released him later that night, traveling all night in the opposite direction afterwards. The incident speaks to Washington's steady hand. In future matters, he would refuse to let himself be swayed by emotional outbursts, favoring reason over passion. Eventually, after a three-month journey in multiple scrapes with death, including almost drowning in frigid, half-frozen rapids, the pair returned to deliver the French reply. Washington's report of his trip, complete with copious notes on the French outpost and its military capability, was turned into a report that, when delivered, provided the kindling for the French and Indian War to begin. Despite the tremendous effort and tact required for the mission, Washington was given barely enough money to cover the expenses incurred on the voyage. But however shorted he was monetarily, the experience thrust him into the middle of a military struggle that would garner him the experience he needed for what was to come. At just 22 years of age, his efforts earned him a promotion to Lieutenant Colonel. The war that was to come, known to us as the French and Indian War between Britain and France, with Native American allies on both sides, began in the upper Ohio River Valley in 1753. And one of the leading causes of the outbreak of violence centered around the young Lieutenant Colonel George Washington. After the French responded to Dinwiddie's letter by refusing to move and continuing the construction of a military base, Washington was ordered to establish a fort of his own. After hearing that a number of French soldiers had run the British out of the area, Washington led a group of British soldiers and Mingo Iroquois to their position. The group of about 50 soldiers trudged through the Allegheny wilderness and discovered a smaller group of French soldiers camped off the main trail. What happened next is a mystery to this day. The leader of those French soldiers, Joseph Coulon de Jumonville, was killed, as were 12 other Frenchmen, with the British led by Washington also capturing 21 prisoners. Though all sides agreed on the number of casualties and the severity of the violence, accounts differ over how that violence broke out. According to Washington, his troops were positioned in the woods when the French spotted them and drew their weapons. In response, Washington ordered his men to fire in self-defense, and they eventually overtook the enemy. Jumonville, according to Washington, was killed in the skirmish. Following the fighting, Washington claimed that the Mingo chief, Tana Sherison, scalped the wounded Frenchmen, sending their scalps to allies to signal an outbreak of war. Men from Tanisharison's group claim that Jumonville died from a musket ball to the head, and that they had to intervene to prevent Washington's men from killing more French soldiers than necessary.
according to French survivors, they were ambushed by the British in what constituted murder. They claim that Washington's troops took no mercy on wounded soldiers, executing them until the Mingos pleaded with them to stop. The truth is foggy at best, but the damage was done, and soon after, the incident lit the spark that would later explode into warfare. For Washington, the violence and danger of the situation seemed to delight him rather than haunt him. In a letter he wrote to his brother John after the incident, he said the following, the right wing where I stood was exposed to and received all the enemy's fire. I heard the bullets whistle and believe me, there is something charming in the sound. His macabre reaction to this intense experience may have helped forge his appetite for battle. Down the road, before he was forced to learn the importance of patience on the battlefield, he had favored aggressive, head-on tactics. To say Washington's actions created enormous consequences would be an extreme understatement. The effects of his aggressive actions were felt far and wide. It started a war between Britain and France that would last nine years. And it wasn't just fought in North America. It was really a world war, as Britain and France continued fighting, vying for colonies in the Caribbean, South America, West Africa, Europe, and India. In the end, the British would be victorious, greatly increasing their land claims. French colonists who settled in Quebec and Maine, known as Acadians, were expelled from their lands. Those Acadians would relocate to Louisiana, where the modern Cajun population would take hold. A short version of the word Acadian led to Cadian and eventually just Cajun. And other than creating one of Louisiana's most defining cultural attributes, the French and Indian War sank England into debt. Britain, with few options to restore its finances, had to resort to increasing taxes on the American colonies. And how did that go over? Well, those tax laws led to protests, which led to violence, which led to open rebellion. So not only did George Washington start a war fought across the globe, he also set the events in motion that would lead to the American Revolution, which he led against the very crown he once fought for. Crazy, right? A few weeks later, the French, along with native allies of their own, mounted a response to the attack on Jumonville and his men. Washington had immediately returned to his fortifications at what would become known as Fort Necessity, one of the most aptly named forts in all of fort history. It was badly situated, though, in an open field surrounded by a tree line that lay neatly within musket range and was hastily constructed. I mean, if you look at the modern replicas of this place, it's little more than a shed with a jagged wooden fence around it. Anyway, the French returned with their allies, which included Ottawa's, Hurons, and others. 
Immediately, the two sides exchanged fire, which resulted in heavy casualties. Soon after the battle began, rain started to pour from the clouds. Each side desperately tried to defend their positions in the storm, but soon, after Washington's available gunpowder became too wet for use, a French officer was sent under a white flag to attempt surrender negotiations. Washington agreed to surrender the fort, with the French allowing them to return to Virginia. But one overlooked detail in the terms of surrender gave the French the justification to declare war. The terms, written in French, said they'd only attacked Fort Necessity not to disturb peace and harmony, but to, and I'll try my best to make this sound like passable French, venger l'assassin qui a du fait sion de nos officers. Washington didn't speak French, and shout out to Duolingo for allowing me to barely get through that sentence, but even his translator may have overlooked it. What it says is that the French acted, quote, to avenge the assassination of one of their officers. In short, Washington signed a document admitting that he assassinated Jumonville. So Washington, who was only 22 at the time, had surrendered, and so early in his military career, probably due to his overly aggressive tactics. It would be an experience, however, he'd never forget, because it was the first and the last time he'd ever surrender in battle. The following year, Britain tasked General Edward Braddock with commanding an organized force against the French for control of the territory. His plan was to lead an assault on the French, hoping to signal a resounding victory. Washington, acting as one of his aide-de-camps at the time, fell violently ill and was confined to his bed in a wagon en route to the French camp. Braddock led the British forces, ignoring aid from Native Americans who had useful intel on the French position. By the time they were within 10 miles of their target, the French launched an ambush and decimated the British forces. In fighting that became known as the Battle of Monongahela, two-thirds of the nearly 1,000 British soldiers were killed or wounded, including Braddock and most of the commanding officers. Many others bolted in fear, while Washington, despite his illness, charged into the chaos on horseback and organized a swift retreat. Accounts of the battle describe his efforts as valiant, as he received several bullet holes through his coat and hat, and had two horses shot from underneath him while trying to save as many troops as he could. Already famous in the colonies for his experience traversing the wilderness to deliver an ultimatum to the French, Washington's star rose even higher, as he was dubbed from then on the hero of Monongahela. Following that disastrous expedition, Washington was made commander-in-chief of all British forces. In the following year, 
he would lead his men, who he made sure received ample training, into 20 battles to defend the Virginian frontier. His final act in service to the British Army, though, came in 1758 at the age of 26. In yet another effort to capture France's Fort Duquesne, British forces accidentally exchanged fire with each other, mistaking the other side for the enemy. A total of 37 men were killed in the embarrassing crossfire. However, that number may have climbed even higher had Washington not realized the mistake and rode along the lines, striking his men's muskets with his sword to get them to cease firing. Shortly after this tragic mistake, Washington retired from his post and returned home. So what experience had young George Washington gained on the battlefield? His actions had started a war between two empires. He had surrendered a fort to the enemy, participated in a battle that cost the lives of more than 500 men, and saw almost 40 of his fellow soldiers killed in friendly fire. To read of his battlefield exploits doesn't exactly inspire confidence in his abilities. However, he received much praise from his men and his commanders. This praise came not for brilliant strategic decisions that he made, or military heroics, but for his character, his ability to stay calm when chaos surrounded him. It's what became one of his defining traits, one that would serve him and his country well in the decades to come. So what happened in the next two decades to thrust him into the ultimate leadership role? What did he do in the 17 years between the French and Indian War and the American Revolution? To find out, tune in next time for part two of George Washington and Rebellion. Rebellion was produced by me, Dustin Connors. If you want to help support the show, one of the best and easiest things you can do is give it a rating on iTunes, or even write a review. The more ratings we receive, the easier it is for new listeners to discover the show. For more on this and other great stories, visit rebellionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.